If you're excited and ready to dive into God's word today, would you say amen? That was pretty good. That was 36%. Anybody else ready to dive into God's word today? All right. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And we studied the church that was in Ephesus. We studied the church that was in Smyrna last week. And today we're going to look at the church that was located in Pergamum or Pergamus. And uh, we're going to study this in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse number 12. I'm looking forward to diving into the Word today. If you need a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. And uh, most of the verses should be on the screen as well today. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 12. The Bible says this, And to the angel, or the messenger, the pastor of the church in Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with the two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even those in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, and uh, uh, Katie has really picked up on that phrase uh, earlier this week. I, d- I forgot to do something, and Katie was reminiscent of the first letter in the church of Ephesus, and she said, you know, I have somewhat against thee, and uh, she was using the scripture against me. I, and uh, he says, I have a few things against thee, verse number 14, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent. Everybody say repent. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone. And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. For a few minutes today, I'd like to speak to this subject, mixed messages, mixed messages. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. Father, thank you for this day, again, that you've given us. Lord, thank you for this time we can come together and really just focus on your word, your truth, and the scripture. And Lord, I pray that we would really lean into your word today. I pray that I would be filled with your spirit to give me the words to say. And Lord, I pray that we would understand how the enemy works and operates so that we can stand strong against the attacks of the devil. And uh, Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be committed to the truth of your word. I pray that you be with us in the next few minutes. We love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said today. Uh, the other night, my son Luke wanted to go to Cold Stone Ice Cream because he had a Cold Stone gift card. And uh, how many of you are Cold Stone fans? Anybody like that in the room today? How many of you are just ice cream fans in general? And so uh, Luke said, let's go to Cold Stone. He had a gift card. Someone gave him a gift card. And so uh, we walked into Cold Stone. And it's been a while since I've been to Cold Stone Ice Cream. And something that I was thankful for right away was that we had a gift card because I realized that Cold Stone is the most expensive ice cream on the planet. Walked in there, and it's $8.99 for a little tiny cup. And, and uh, we 
walked in there, and Luke knew exactly what he wanted. He was a simple man. He walked in that. He didn't have any questions. He didn't ask for any, he didn't ask for any samples. He walked in there, and there was a picture on the gift card that we had, and it was some sort of specialty concoction that uh, Cold Stone had, and it was like peanut butter and chocolate, and, and Luke walked in there with that gift card, and he just held it up and said, I'll have this. <laughs> like, he just, he knew what he wanted, and he says, this is what I want. Uh, my youngest daughter, Blakely, on the other hand, she had a few more questions. It was a little bit more complicated for her, and she was asking me every flavor. Dad, what's that one? And Dad, what's this one right here? Oh, Dad, look at this one right here. She eventually landed on blue cotton candy flavor ice cream, and uh, that's what she wanted. And then she realized that she could get toppings, and so then she was really excited about that, and she asked for Reese's peanut butter cups, and uh, she asked for Captain Crunch cereal, and uh, she asked for white chocolate chips, and, and uh, then she asked if she could have some caramel uh, as well uh, for her ice cream. And I was telling Blakely, I don't know if this is a good idea. Like, I don't, uh, Blakely, I don't think you understand, but she was adamant. She, she said, nope, that's what I want, and she was confident, and so uh, I said, all right, and uh, we were driving home, and I noticed that Blakely was kind of being quiet in the back seat. And I said, Blakely, what's wrong? You know, why are you being so quiet? And she said, Dad, I didn't know they were going to mix it all together. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what she thought. I don't know if she thought she was going to get like separate individual containers for all those things. But when she saw it all mixed together, it was definitely not what she thought. You know, there's a truth, uh, there's a, a true reality in life. And that is that certain things are not meant to be mixed together. And this really is the idea of the letter uh, to the church that was located in Pergamos. Uh, the city of Pergamos, interestingly, had a name that meant mixed marriage. And that was indicative of the church that was in the culture because uh, the church that was in the city was mixing uh, together things in the church that shouldn't be mixed together in the church. They were, uh, they were allowing this, uh, this uh, uh, compromising, this, this syncretism to take place. Uh, Paul uh, said this to Timothy, who was a young pastor. He was encouraging Timothy in the, min- in the ministry. And he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 4, He said, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. He says, if you're going to go to battle, you better make sure that you are not distracted going into battle. You better make sure that you are not caught up in the affairs of this life. Don't get entangled up with things that don't really matter in all of eternity. What does he say? Make sure that you are not mixed in together with the world. And this is a message that the church in 2023 needs today. Because there are many people that are getting caught up in the ideologies and the philosophies of this world. Uh, There's this idea known as syncretism where uh, you can kind of just have Jesus on the shelf, but you can also kind of take, you know, a truth from over here and let's take a philosophy from over here and an ideology from over here and let's just sync them all together. Let's mix them all together and we'll just be one big happy family. The problem with this idea of syncretism and mixing things together is Jesus pretty plainly said, I am the way, the truth truth and the life. How many of you know today that's an exclusive claim? He says, I am the only way uh, to heaven. And so the church of Pergamos was struggling uh, with this idea of, of mixing things uh, together. James says this, James, the brother of Jesus, he said, uh, you adulterers and adulteresses. Pretty strong language that James uses. He says, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. We might think, well, what does that mean? Well, 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 two things. First, we have to recognize that the church is the bride of Christ, and Jesus wants a faithful bride. 
Jesus wants a committed bride. Uh, the idea here of not being a friend of the world, this does not mean that we can't have friends that are lost or we can't be friendly with people that are not Christians. Of course not. What it means is that we cannot adopt and subscribe to a worldly philosophy and a worldly way of thinking. And so to be a friend of the world is to say, you know what, I'm going to think like the world and act like the world, and I'm just going to live like the world. And this is what James says that, that we ought not uh, to do. And so this was the struggle in Pergamus. Now, uh, Pergamus is still in existence today in modern-day Turkey. It's known as Bergama. I think we have a picture uh, this morning. Pergamus was the uh, capital city in Asia Minor. And so when you think about these different cities that Jesus wrote a letter to, uh, think of Pergamus like London or like Paris. This was an influential city. This was uh, the capital city. And uh, they did not have as strong of a presence commercially as Ephesus or Smyrna, uh, but they were the epicenter, the very center of the ancient world when it came to culture. They were a very fashionable city and very uh, wealthy city. And in fact, in Pergamus, there was the second largest library in the known world uh, there in Pergamus. It was a 200,000 volume library. Uh, these books were written by hand on rolls of parchment. This was a massive uh, library. This city had massive influence. Uh, of course, Pergamus, just like all the other cities, <clears throat> Pergamus had false deities and, and pagan gods that they worship, and uh, one of which was this uh, god known as Asclepius. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say Asclepius. It's just kind of a fun word to say, and uh, Asclepius. And uh, this was known as the god of healing and medicine. Everybody with me today? The god of healing and medicine. I think we have a picture today. It was, it was uh, represented by a snake uh, intertwined with a staff, this Asclepius. And it was the snake god, so to speak, the god, of, the god of healing and medicine. There was a temple in Pergamus dedicated to Asclepius that was filled with snakes. This was like, you know, a scene out of an Indiana Jones movie, okay? All these snakes there in that temple. And they believed, and they had this superstitious belief that if you had some sort of physical infirmity, uh, if you had some sort of, uh, of, of impalement that you needed to be healed from, you were asked to go into this temple of Asclepius, and you would spend the night there on the floor. And if a snake were to slither across your body, it was believed that you would be healed of whatever disease that you have. And I don't know about you, but if I have a disease in Pergamus, I'm just keeping the disease. I'm not even going uh, to that temple. Uh, but this is what they believe. They had this temple for Asclepius. They had a famous temple of Zeus, and it was on a hilltop where everybody could see it. This was the city of Pergamus. This is where uh, God had a church that was trying to live for truth in this city. Now, what does Jesus have to say to this church located in Pergamus? Well, I want us to get a little bit of context as to what Jesus is saying, and a little bit of uh, uh, kind of an introduction here to this letter. And I want us to see the beginning starting in verse number 12, I want you to see how Jesus really has intense language. Okay, I want you to see how he comes in with strong language. Notice what it says in verse number 12. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And so Jesus begins this letter different than the other letters, and Jesus begins with sharp language. He, he begins with wartime imagery. He says, I'm writing to you, and you need to know that I'm writing to you, and I'm carrying a sword, a two-edged sword. Now, why would Jesus use this intense language? Remember, Jesus is the definition of love. Uh, Jesus is so compassionate because Jesus is compassion. Jesus is the prince of peace. 
He's the gentle, lowly shepherd. But here we see Jesus coming in with a sword, and he's using this wartime language. Well, we know, if you know your Bible, uh, that the Word of God, the Bible, is often referred to as a sword. Uh, The Word of God is quick. It's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation in the sword of the Spirit. Well, what is that? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And so in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm coming to you, I'm writing this letter, and I have a word for you. You need to pay attention to the words that I'm giving you. And the reason Jesus was coming with this intense language is because the church that was located in the city of Pergamos was believing and falling prey to the lies of the culture. They were listening to the lies of the culture. And so Jesus says, I'm coming with a sword because I'm going to cut through the lies of the culture so that you can know what the truth is. And this is so relevant and so pertinent and so important for our church today. Because if you haven't noticed, we're living in a culture that is constantly bombarding us with lies. Many times lies that sound good on the surface. Plausible sounding arguments that might seem to make sense upon our first hearing. We hear things all the time in culture. We hear things like, it's your body, it's your choice. We hear things like, live your truth. We hear things like, follow your heart, whatever makes you happy. But we have to understand that while on the surface level, it might sound okay, uh, we have to recognize uh, my body, my choice. It is not my body. We have to recognize that, that our bodies have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And my body houses the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And so it's not my volition to do whatever I want with my body. My body belongs to the Lord and he deserves the glory in everything that I say and do and everywhere that I go. It's all for him and for his glory. And so we have to understand today these lies and this war over the words in our culture. And here's the problem with lies. It's not so much that we tell them, it's that we live them. Unintentionally, we hear things from the culture and we subscribe to that kind of mentality. And we don't even know that the devil has a foothold in our life because he is uh, giving us and feeding us these lies. And this is exactly what was happening in Pergamos. And so Jesus says, I'm coming in and I'm writing this letter with uh, the truth of God's word, with the sword that I can cut through the lies. Why? Because Jesus loves us too much to, to let us live the lie. He loves us too much to let us carry out and to live according to the lies of the world. Uh, By the way, it is the truth of God's word that will set you free. It's the truth of God's word that gives hope for the next generation. It's the truth of God's word that will set us free from anxiety. It's the truth of God's word that will give us boldness to go into a dark place. Does anybody believe today that there is power and there is freedom and there is liberty in the truth of God's word? And so I'm not going to subscribe to the lies of the culture. Because I'm going to let the word of God come in and cut through and cut through those lies and reveal what the truth is. And so this is the mindset of Jesus as he writes this letter. Do you see how Jesus is not playing games? I'm coming with a sword. I've got to cut through these lies to reveal what the truth is. Now, with that in mind, I want to give us three simple, very simple components uh, to the church at Pergamos today. And uh, I would encourage you to jot some of these things down. And uh, I'm praying that this would be a benefit for our church family. Three things today. Are you ready for them? Two people. Anybody else ready for them? Three, Three things? Okay. Number one, they were committed. 
Three things about the church at Pergamos. They were committed. Now, you might think that because Jesus comes in with intense language and he says, I'm carrying the sword, I'm wielding a sword, you might think that this church wasn't doing anything right. But actually, that's not true. Jesus was commending them because they were committed, and they were committed to the name of Jesus, as we'll see. I want you to see, uh, starting in verse number 13. If you can see it, would you say amen? Amen. Verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. I know where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. And you'll notice at the end of verse number 13, he also says where Satan dwelleth. And so I find it fascinating that two times in one verse, Jesus says this to the church located in the city of Pergamos. He says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know all about your location. And then he says, specifically in verse number 13, he says, I know where you live. And he says, where Satan's seat is. Now that's pretty intense. He says, Perkins, I know where you live. You live where Satan lives. Now, you know you're in a rough neighborhood when Satan has a condo across the street, right? Like that's just a bad, bad neighborhood. You got to get out of there. He says, I know where you live, where Satan lives. Now, a lot of times in our culture today, we have a shallow understanding of the devil. And we just kind of blame things on the devil. Have you noticed this? Like, like uh, we'll just blame little things. Man, the devil's attacking me. Like, I'm trying to get a, a, a close parking spot at the grocery store, and I can't find a, a parking spot at the grocery store. The devil's just attacking me today. No, maybe the Lord just knows you need some exercise, and so he wants you to park a little bit further away. And we can just kind of blame the devil on all kinds of things. I don't believe that the devil is in everything, but you better believe that he's in some things. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know your location where Satan's seat is. And you have to just pause for a minute. We have to pause for a minute and just understand where we are as a society in our culture today. Even in regards to Satan. You know, where in times past, you know, the work of Satan, we might say, is subtle. And Satan is subtly attacking. Well, now we see it's not subtle. Even if you saw the Grammys last week or read in the news... As to what happened in the Grammys last week, there was a tribute and a performance for Satan. And CBS tweeted out, who was hosting and broadcasting, they tweeted out in a tweet that has since been deleted, but they said, we are ready to worship. And so when we have a culture that is highlighting Satan and saying, we're ready to worship, we understand that we're in a very dark place. You know, it's interesting, 70 years ago, CBS would not even air an I Love Lucy episode that said the word pregnant, because they deemed the word pregnant to be too inappropriate for television. And now here we are 70 years later, and we're seeing in 2023 what's being highlighted and celebrated in our culture today. It reminds me of a quote from Paradise Lost, talking about the attitude of those that have rejected the ways of God that says, you know what, it's better to reign in hell than it is to serve in heaven. This is where we're at as a culture. We have to understand and wake up our eyes. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell. Now, today, most of us wouldn't subscribe to a theology of Satan and worship Satan. But tragically, many people are worshiping the same thing that Satan worshiped. What did Satan worship? Self. Lucifer was cast out of heaven because he wanted to be lift up. He wanted to have the preeminence. He wanted to be worshiped above, above God. And so he was worshiping self. And we live in an individualistic culture where number one is king. 
I just want to serve myself. I just want to be happy. I just want to do whatever I want. And if we're not careful, we will subscribe to this theology where we are the most important things, and it's all about my delight. But the Christian life has never been about self-delight. The Christian life has always been about self-denial that we pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus. And so Jesus is riding to Pergamos, and he says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live, even where Satan's seat is. But by the way, he didn't tell the church at Pergamos. He didn't say, man, you're in a bad place. You need to get up and get out of there. He didn't say, man, you are in a bad place. You're in Satan's neighborhood. You need to move right away. In fact, Jesus says, you know what? I've called you for such a time as this, and I want you to be my outpost. I want you to uh, be there to declare the good news of the gospel message, not to run from it, but to stand strong in it. William Barclay said this. He said, the principle of the Christian life is not escape, but conquest. I'm going to read that again because some of us need to hear it. The Christian life, the principle of the Christian life is not escape, but conquest that we have the victory in Jesus' name. It's about conquest. We may feel it would be very much easier to be a Christian in some other place and in some other circumstances, but the duty of Christians is to witness for Christ where life has set them. God knows right where you are. This is the message I believe God is saying to Rock Hill Church. I know where you dwell. I know right where I've placed you. I know all about Rancho Cucamonga. I know all about Fontana. I know about Ontario. I know about Upland. I know about California. And I have called you here for such a time as this. And now is not the time to back down in fear. Now is not the time to escape and cower. Now is the time to recognize that we are a lighthouse called to bring more people in. And hey, the darker the night, the brighter the light. And it's our job to keep on throwing out the life preserver. It's our job to say, hey, we're having plus one Sunday, not so that we can just have tacos and not so that we can just uh, have a fun day, although I hope we will. It's our job to go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. And Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. But notice how they were taking a stand even in their location. Are you with me today? Notice it in verse 13. I know that works. And where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name. Even in this dark place, the church at Pergamos was not denying or forgetting the name of Jesus. And this was very commendable. They were holding fast to the name of Jesus. They were still singing about Jesus' name. They were still praising about Jesus' name. They were still praying in Jesus' name. Can I tell you today, never be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. There is power in the name of Jesus Christ. And at Rock Hill, it's not about a system. It's not about a structure. It's not about a style. It's not about trying to be relevant. It's not about trying to be cool. It's all about the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name. And we want to hold fast to his name. That's what Pergamus was doing. They were holding fast to his name. But then notice what he says in verse 13. He says, you have not denied my faith. So not only were they holding fast to the name of Jesus, they were not denying the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Uh, How many of you uh, were able to go to Rock Hill Conference a couple weeks ago? Yeah, we had a great conference, and uh, we had some practical breakout sessions, and one of the breakout sessions was, can we agree to disagree? And we were talking about some fundamental truths and some fundamental doctrines that we cannot uh, afford to skip over. We cannot afford to budge on. And, uh, and uh, this is what the church at Pergamos was doing. There were certain things that they were not going to deny, and Jesus commends them. He says, you've not denied my faith. This was a good thing. And so not only did they have a strong stand, but then they had a strong sacrifice, because I want you to see what it says in verse 13 towards the end. He says in verse 13, 
and has not denied my faith even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you. Now, we don't exactly know, but most commentators have a general consensus that Antipas was the pastor located in Pergamos. So the pastor of their congregation was killed for preaching the truth, for standing up and saying, thus saith the Lord, he was martyred. Tertullian, in his writings, he says that, that Antipas was placed within a brass bowl and he was roasted to death. And so we see their stand, but they were also a church that knew all about sacrifice. And something that we say at Rock Hill is that uh, God will not, not build something great apart from sacrifice, that it's going to take uh, the sacrifice of God's people uh, to move forward. We have to be willing to uh, commit and to put our lives on the line for what it is that we believe. There has to be a spirit uh, that, that says, I'm going to take a stand, but also a spirit that says, I'm willing to sacrifice my time, my talent, my treasure to see uh, what God can do through me. And this is all what was taking place in the church at Pergamos. The Bible says this in Romans 12, verse number 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies a living, what is it? Sacrifice. A sacrifice. Sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I love those two words, reasonable service. Can I just tell you, it makes sense to serve God. It's reasonable. Hey, hey, to serve Jesus and to follow Jesus, it just makes sense. When you think about how good God has been, when you think about the fact that God sent his only begotten son to live a perfect life and to die on the cross in your place and in my place, it just makes sense to serve God. It's not a have to, it's a get to. I want to give my life to Jesus. It's my reasonable service to sacrifice for him. Anytime we start to think, well, I just, I'm just doing too much. And hey, listen, it's a reasonable service. It just makes sense to serve God. And so this was the commendable action. This was celebrated by Jesus that they were committed. And I believe that if we're going to see God do some great things in 2023 as a church, we're going to need to be a church body that remains committed to the calling that God has for us. In fact, I believe that we should have a calling that goes deeper than commitment. When other people might say, you know what, it's time to quit. I've done too much. I'm too tired. There will be something inside of us that says, I can't give in. I can't quit. I've been called for such a time as this. I'm going to keep on serving. I'm going to keep on showing up. I'm going to keep on sacrificing and holding fast to the name of Jesus. I'm not giving in. I'm going to stay committed to what God has called me to do. This was Pergamos. So Jesus celebrates the good that they've done, but next he criticizes. Because not only were they committed, here's the second point today, they were compromising. They were holding fast to the name of Jesus. But they were allowing the things of this world to infiltrate their hearts and minds. In other words, they were not practicing what it was they were professing. They were not always walking their talk. And so uh, we see that Jesus is going to confront this. And it starts in verse number 14. If you're still with me, would you say amen today? Amen. Verse 14, it says, but I have a few things against thee. So Jesus says, okay, let's really get to the heart of it. Let's see what, what it is that you need to do to get back on track. He says, because thou hast, thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. And so the first doctrine, is it okay if I just teach for a few minutes this morning? The first doctrine that Jesus warns about is this doctrine of Balaam. 
Now, he's referencing an Old Testament narrative in Numbers, uh, Numbers 22 through 25, uh, about uh, this man named Balak and another man named Balaam. And you can read about it uh, today when you get home in Numbers. Uh, and uh, it's a fascinating story where the king of Moab was named Balak. And Balak was intimidated by the size and the strength of Israel and, and Israel's armies. And so, so Balak thinks, man, I need, I need to do something about this. And so he hires and calls in a sorcerer. He calls in this man named Balaam. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to put a curse on Israel. And so Balaam says, all right, I'll go. I'll do this. And so Balaam says, I'll go and put a curse on Israel. And as he's going, God says, absolutely not. God says, no, you cannot put a curse on my people. I have not called my people to be cursed. I've called my people to be blessed in Genesis 12. So he says, you cannot, you cannot curse them. But Balaam goes anyways. And so Balaam is going. And uh, the Bible is so fascinating. The Bible says that Balaam was walking uh, with, uh, he was riding on his donkey. And he was on the path. How many of you are familiar with this story? And a few of you. And uh, the Bible is so fascinating. The Bible is so interesting, okay? Uh, the people that say the Bible is boring, uh, just come to me after the service today. I'll give you a couple passages to check out. Okay, so uh, the Bible is so interesting. And Balaam was riding on his donkey. And the Bible says that there was an angel that stood in the path that blocked the path so the donkey couldn't get forward. The donkey could see the angel, but Balaam, who was riding the donkey, could not see the angel. And so Balaam is frustrated. He's like, why did my donkey stop all of a sudden? And you can read the story. He just starts hitting his donkey. He's like, go. He's getting frustrated. He's getting upset. And he's like, move. You need to move. Uh, the donkey can see the angel, uh, but Balaam can't see the angel. And then God does something very fascinating. He allows the donkey the ability to speak. This is like Old Testament Shrek and the donkey. He just starts talking to him. And uh, he's hitting the donkey. And uh, the donkey just looks up at him. And he essentially says, why do you keep hitting me? And Balaam's like, what in the world? And, uh, and uh, it, was, it was kind of a, a strange moment. He's like, why do you keep hitting me? And then the Bible says that God opened up Balaam's eyes so he could see the angel. So now Balaam knows, <clears throat> wow, I really can't go and curse the Israelites. And so this was what Balaam decided to do. He knew that he couldn't curse the Israelites. And so what he decided to do was corrupt them. And the Bible says this in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. Behold, these caused the children of Israel. Watch this. Everybody still with me? Watch this. He says, through the counsel of Balaam. Through the words of Balaam. Balaam knew that he couldn't curse them, so he decided to corrupt them, and he counsels them. By the way, be very careful about the voices that you listen to in life. Be very careful about the counsel that you receive. A lot of times we think getting counsel is just talking to our best friend that's going to tell us what we want to hear anyways. That's not counsel. The Bible says there's safety in a multitude of counselors. And here Balaam decided to counsel the people of Israel to commit trespass against the Lord. And so here Balaam counsels the people of God to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, to go and to commit fornication, to live a life of sin. He knew that he couldn't, corrupt, he knew that he couldn't curse them, so he decided to corrupt them. And here's what you need to know today. The devil knows that he cannot curse you. If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He knows that he cannot curse you. So what he's going to try to do, everything in his power to corrupt you. And so this then is the doctrine of Balaam. It's the doctrine of corruption. That the devil wants nothing more than to get a foothold in your life and to come into your life and start corrupting your thoughts, 
start corrupting your heart, uh, start corrupting your good intentions. And so this is what was taking place, that, that they were following the doctrine of Balaam. They were living in fornication. They were living in sexual sin. They were saying, hey, God, we can kind of just do whatever it is that we want. And so Jesus confronts the doctrine of Balaam, but then he confronts the second doctrine, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Notice it in verse number 15. It says this, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, if you were here, how many of you were here in the first week when we talked about the church of Ephesus? Were you here? Now, the church of Ephesus, they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Bible tells us that they stood strong against this group. But here in Pergamos, they were not rejecting them. They were embracing them. And the Nicolaitans essentially had this kind of antinomian worldview. And an antinomian worldview essentially says it's kind of a grace gone wild approach to life, a, a license approach to life, where God's grace has been so good to me, and God has forgiven me of my sins, and he's going to forgive me of whatever I do. Therefore, I'll just kind of do whatever it is that I want. God's going to forgive me anyways. Uh, The Bible says in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so this was their kind of mindset. They they thought, you know, we love Jesus. We're going to hold fast in the name of Jesus, but also uh, we kind of like flirting with the world as well. We also kind of like uh, going over here and having fun at this party and going to this place and doing these things. And so what was happening was there was compromise. Do you see how the world was starting to mix in to their thinking? And here's what you need to know about compromise. Are you ready for it? Here's Here's what you need to know about compromise. Compromise is never an event. It's always an evolution. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to leave my spouse today. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know what? I just want to destroy my family today. I just want to wake up today. You know, I'm just never going to talk to my kids again. You don't just one day decide, I'm just going to leave. The, you know, I don't know. I'm just out. I'm not going to believe God anymore. It's never an event. It's always an evolution. It's always a process. It's little things that turn into big things. It's little decisions that lead to bigger decisions. It's never an event. It's always an evolution. That is why the Bible says in Ephesians 4, neither give place to the devil. Don't even give him a little inch. Don't even give him a foothold in your life. You say it's not that big of a deal. It's just a small thing. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Jesus is saying it can become a big deal. And so we have to recognize today that the enemy wants nothing more than to corrupt your heart, your mind, your marriage, your family. He wants nothing more than to corrupt our church. And so we have to decide that we're going to take the sword of God's word and the truth of God's word. And we're going to cut through the lies of this culture and stand strong with the words of the Lord. And so they, reject, they were embracing the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And this is what Jesus has to say about it in verse 16. Repent. To repent means to change your mind. He says, you better turn. You better make a decision. You better repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says, we're about to have a war with our words. Now, this leads us to our last thought. You have one more in here today? They were committed. That was commendable. They were compromising. That was not good. And here's the third component. They were challenged. Now, it's good in life to be challenged. Would you agree? Be careful if you find yourself in a season of life or in a place of life where no one's challenging you, no one's speaking life into you, no one's holding you accountable. A lack of accountability will always lead to complacency. Complacency will always lead to corruption. We have to make sure that we're in a place where people can speak life into us. People can uh, hold us accountable. A good sermon is supposed to comfort the afflicted, but then afflict the comfortable, that we have to be challenged. And so what does Jesus do? He celebrates what they did right, 
He criticizes what they did wrong, and he challenges them moving forward. And so as we close today, I want us to look at this challenge and see how it applies to our life. Are you ready for it? Notice verse 17. It says this. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh. Here's the challenge. You can overcome. Can I tell you today that you can get the victory in the name of Jesus? Hey, whatever sin is holding back, whatever stronghold is present in your life, whatever temptation seems to be constantly, incessantly attacking you and coming back, I want you to know today that you can get the victory in the name of Jesus Christ. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin is not your master. Your master is Jesus Christ, and you can overcome. Mighty through God to the pulling down of those strongholds. And so Jesus challenges the church you can overcome you can get victory I want you to repent I want you to get back on track it's possible but then he says this he says in verse 17 he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith to the churches to him that overcometh if you get victory if you overcome will I give to eat of the hidden manna and I love this thought the hidden manna now we know what manna is right It was the supernatural food source that God gave to his people when they were wandering in the wilderness. Remember when the children of Israel were wandering in that exodus out of of Egypt and God supernaturally provided that manna for them. And so manna then speaks of provision. Are you tracking with me? Manna speaks of provision. But then he says, I have hidden manna. I was thinking about that this week. You know, some restaurants, some fast food places, like In-N-Out, which is a great godly establishment, in-N-Out has a secret, not-so-secret menu. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, you can go to In-N-Out. It's not on the menu, but you can get certain things. You can get animal-style fries. Uh, you can get uh, chopped chilies on your, on your cheeseburger. I know Daniel's a fan of that. You can get whole-grilled. On- you, you, can, you can access the secret menu. I read this week, and people have already confronted me after the service today, uh, but I read this week uh, that, that Chick-fil-A might even have a secret menu. Now, they deny it. I've already been sent articles. Thank you for that. And, uh, and uh, they can deny it and say they don't have a secret menu. But I don't know. Something tells me they have something up their sleeve. And I'm determined to find out what the secret menu is at Chick-fil-A. I love that Jesus says to the church, I have hidden manna. Are you with me? He says, I want to bless you in ways that you can't even see. I want to provide for you in ways that you don't even know about yet. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor entered into the heart of man what the Lord has prepared for them that love him. We have no idea how God wants to provide for us. He says, stay faithful, you can overcome, because I have hidden manna. What is he saying to the church? He's saying, you don't need to eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols. You don't need to subscribe to a worldly philosophy. You don't need to consume what the world is trying to feed you. You don't have to fill up on the temptations of the world. Hey, there is something waiting that is better. There is hidden manna that is better. I want to supply for you. I want to sustain you. I want to provide for you. So don't give in to what the world has to offer because there is blessing waiting beyond the bait. I've hidden manna for you. Maybe today you're in need. Maybe you are in need of some provision. And the word that Jesus has for you today is, hey, stay faithful. I have hidden manna. You don't know what's around the corner. We didn't know in the middle of 2020 in COVID that God had this building prepared for us. This was hidden manna. I could preach this all day talking about hidden manna. That that God wants to provide for us in ways that we can't even see. Right now we're in a stretching season as a church. We don't know where our next building is. 
We're filling up three services on a Sunday. We don't know, but I believe that God is faithful to provide. He is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. I believe that he will provide for our church. I believe that he can provide in your marriage, in your home, for your children. That's what he does. He's a provider. So don't grow weary in well-doing. There's, there's manna, but you can't see it. It's hidden. There's hidden manna, but then he also mentions verse 17, the white stone. It was verse 17. He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone. Now, I would encourage you in your own time this week uh, to go and to study that out. There's so many different references of the white stone and uh, culturally the white stone uh, in, in the ancient world would be used for many different things. Uh, one of the most prominent things that they would use a white stone for was if you were a participant in one of the Olympic type games and you were a, a winner, if you won your competition, they would give you a white stone. And that white stone you could carry with you. And if you were part of that a special elite group where you were in the winner's circle, you were invited to special banquets and feasts that only the winners could go to if you had that white stone. And so manna speaks to provision, but the white stone speaks to privilege. Can I tell you today that we are privileged to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And just like that white stone, we've been given access to the God of the universe. That, that, that we have access to God, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace, and that we have been blessed and privileged to be in God's family. The Bible says this in Ephesians 1, verse number 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. I tell you today, you are blessed. Might not feel like it, but we are blessed today. In fact, look at your neighbor and say, you're blessed. Look at your second choice and say, you too. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So we have these blessings in Christ Jesus. We have this privilege. And he says, you'll receive a white stone. And then he says, with a new name on it. Did you catch that part in verse number 17? A new name on it. You know, often in the Bible, God would change people's names. You ever recognize that? That will change people's names. Abram became Abraham. Jacob became Israel. And God would change people's names because your name was symbolic of your character. And Jacob was a deceiver and, and a supplanter. But Israel was victorious with Christ. Israel was victorious with God. And so a new name meant a new identity, a new character. And so God would often change names. Uh, Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul. He would change names. And this is what the Bible says in Colossians 3, verse number 10. And having put on the new man, we're a new creation. We're a new, we have new character. We have a new identity. We're a child of God. Put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. And here's the question that I have for us today. Have you experienced that new life the new man. Have you had a time in your life when you prayed and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you became in that moment a new creation? Because if you did, if you have prayed and accepted Jesus Christ, then your name is written down in glory. Your name is recorded and registered in heaven. Paul said this, last verse I'll read today in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 4. He said, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. The book of life. Is your name registered in heaven? 
has your name been written down in that book of life? The reality is, James says, life is so short, life is but a vapor, it appears for a little time, then it vanishes away. And God forbid today, if you were to lose your life, where would you spend eternity? Do you have a home in heaven? Are you not exactly sure? Is your name recorded in the Lamb's book of life? I believe that today can be the day of salvation for you. I believe that Jesus concludes this letter reminding us of this new name, this new character, this new life that's available only through Jesus. And if you've never accepted Christ, today can be that day for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.